podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving. At your desk. Maybe at the gym. But you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach. And see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Hello, Martin, and everybody else listening on the podcast feed or on YouTube. Welcome back to Cricket Unfiltered. I'm Menas. I'm with Paul Dennett. Paul, it's been a while since we convened for one of these. It has been. We've actually not had much uh, contact for a while in any way, which has been, it's been years since that's been the case. It's like, um, it's like our marriage is kind of half broken up. Um, it's quite a, it's been, you know, what do they say? You know, even lovers need a, a time away from each other. Um, we've had that. So um, it's good to see you again. Yeah, it's good to see you. You did something silly and you went out and got yourself a full-time job. So that's a bit annoying for um, calling you up in the middle of the day to talk about cricket. I can't oh, I can do still that do that. I, I, you know, cricket's always going to be the priority. <laughs> if anyone's from work, my work is listening to that, that's not true. Um, but for those listening, um, Jaleesa is not here, unfortunately. Look, part of the reason we haven't been recording regularly over the last sort of four weeks has just been it's been really difficult uh Jaleesa sort of had long COVID so she's battling away her voice comes in and out and you know Paul started a new job and it's just been a bit of a mess I've, I've managed to record an interview with Dan Christian which I released and um, I did an IPL special with Chloe and Gab but it's just been really hard to get the old gang back together so that's all um and, you know, we're probably going to do this show today and wrap up all the, the news and then we might take a break from Cricket Unfiltered and um, we might do some odd IPL episodes, but then, um, you know, once the sort of break is over for Australian cricket, then we'll get back into it. But as it stands, actually, Paul, the Cricket Australia office is closed. They are out fishing. Well, that's traditionally been what Cricket Unfiltered has done that during the IPL. It's kind of, um, you know, it's basically been every week, for you know nine years now that you've um, led the show, but with the kind of hiatus in that April period, so uh, nothing nothing unusual on that front. But um, yeah, I'm looking forward to I'm really looking forward to getting back into the cricket because I've actually watched much cricket in the last couple of weeks. Again, just like having not had much contact with you, can't remember the last time I've gone this far without having watched. I mean, I've watched some, but hasn't been as much as um, I normally would. But keen to get back into it. Uh, nothing against the IPL. It's just that um, it's kind of passed me by a little bit this year because of the time zone and everything else. Yeah, I actually, the opposite. I got sucked in over the Easter long weekend to the IPL. <laughs> found myself, you know, up till three, four in the morning watching the end of games. And, uh, yeah, it, it, yeah, it sucked me in this weekend. And um, I really enjoyed talking to Chloe, Amanda Bailey and Gav about the IPL. Chloe, I don't know if you know her, Paul, but she is just a huge IPL fan. She's all over it. She watches just about every game. So it was good to have her on the show, and I think she'll be back. Yeah, I know of her, but I don't know her um, directly. But yeah, and look, I could be, uh, look, give me the opportunity. I could see myself within about four days uh, becoming the biggest IPL fan going around and um, staying up all night long easily. So it's probably a good thing that it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> you probably needed some sleep after the Pakistan tour, Paul. Probably helped the fact that, you know, that ended and you could get back into regular sleep patterns. Well, I mean, as, as, as I said at the time, it was the a wonderful series in every way except one. And that one way was 
that because of the poor pitches, the cricket itself was um, for long stretches not all that interesting. Um, that you, you know, if you took a a random ten minute segment of one of those Test matches and just watched it without knowing the context, you'd say, and, and people pay to watch this. Like it was um, it was pretty hard to watch. So I feel like the fact that I watched uh, I don't know ninety five percent of the balls um, uh, deserves some sort of medal um, for that. Uh, but as I said, apart from that. Every other aspect of it was wonderful, just not the pitches. Well, Paul, since the last show, I had an amazing night at the Cricket New South Wales Awards. So I got invited to the big presentation for the Cricket New South Wales players at Star City. And um, it was fantastic. It was in the big, you know, room there, the event centre. And I just went along to have a good time. Um, you know, they present the Belinda Clark medal and the Steve War medal each year. And they also just have a little section where they read out media awards. And I was knocked off my chair when they read out um, that my interview with Alex Blackwell won an award for best coverage of inclusion and diversity in um, cricket. I, I was flabbergasted. Congratulations, Menas. Yeah, it's really, really exciting. Uh, I, it was a great interview as well. I really enjoyed listening to it. And it's, um, yeah, it's great to, great to get that recognition. Well done. Yeah, it was fun. It was, um, you know, all the all the um, all the great players were there from New South Wales history, and uh, the the great cricketers were the ones that read out uh, my award. Um, so that was nice because we've always had a funny relationship. But you know, they were really nice, um, Ian and Sam, great guys. We had a good chat afterwards. So yeah, it was it was a it was a fun night. That's phenomenal. Yeah, I mean. The- it's an honour to get the award from them. They've, they've um, done so well as well. So, yeah, congratulations, Minas. Uh, fantastic for mm. the show. Yeah, and uh, everyone, if you haven't listened to it, go and find that interview with Alex Blackwell. It's on this feed. And um, I found it a really challenging interview because it was sort of talking about topics that, um, I guess, stretch my skill set and stretch my understanding. And um, I-, I learnt a lot, and I think most listeners will as well. Did you get a chance to speak to Alex at the awards? So Alex wasn't there, but I have been in, in touch since then, and, and she's she was thrilled. I thanked oh, her for obviously being such a great guest, and um, yeah, there was a few players there. The, the funniest thing on the night was they they give out the two big awards. They give out the Belinda Clark Medal and the Steve War Medal, and they read out the Belinda Clark Medal winner, which was Maitland Brown, the the quick bowler from New South Wales, who's also been on Manners Masterclass. And all of a sudden, I see a, a few of the New South Wales players just dash out the back door, like like um, Sonic the Hedgehog style, so fast. And I'm like, "What's going on?" And then I realised Maitland Brown wasn't in the room when they read out her name to win the award. She was probably out the back doing a TikTok or something. Maybe she was just in the bathroom. But it was like ages that she wasn't there. You know, minutes went by with just them waiting for her to come up. And then she ran in. Who knows where she'd been? She could hardly breathe. It was it was hilarious. No, that's pretty cool. Um, all right, let's get into the cricket headlines brought to you by Piccolo Podcast. So we haven't actually recorded since the Shane Warne memorial service, Paul. And Jaleesa was down there. We were meant to record the day after, but we just couldn't make it happen. She lost her voice. So um, I know it's been a few weeks since the service, but uh, how do you reflect on it? Well, actually, um, for me, because I've uh, been so busy in the, in the last few weeks doing other things, I didn't actually get to watch it um, live. And I, I wanted to watch it 
I didn't want to watch it hurried and hassled and whatever else. So I, I diarized to watch it at another point. I actually had the chance to watch it last night and just before the show completed it. So it's actually fresh for me. And yeah, it was just, um, it was really good and really sad about, as we've always said, that, that no one can believe that he's dead. Uh, I see him and instantly just get a shock. Oh, that's right. He's dead. I can't believe it. And yeah, I think that um, Jared Waitley summed it up all right in the show afterwards with Craddock saying that it was a perfect sort of um, um, amalgam of, uh, somber, um, of irreverent, of, um, you know, they had the, the sportsman's night type of jokes. Then you had the really great musical acts. And of course, the the family, his dad spoke magnificently well. And then his kids were, you know, it was so hard to watch them speak. It was so painful to watch them speak, but they did such a good job. And it was a very good, you know, they, they did it well, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. I think they pulled it off excellently. It's one of the it's hard to say it's one of the memorial services I've liked the most because they're, they're sad occasions. But uh, this one I felt really captivated the audience. I thought the musical acts were superb. Elton John, um, Noise Works or John Stevens, uh, Chris Martin, uh, Robbie Williams. I mean, you just think of that you just think of those names, Paul. That's the sort of superstar Warren is. I mean, they're, they're the biggest names in music in the world and they're at Warren's Memorial. Yeah, Ed Sheeran too. I don't know if you mentioned him. Um, no, yeah, I didn't. The, yeah, it's it's a, yeah, that's the thing with Warney that um, and Kylie Minogue giving a tribute of you know what what fun it was to have a barbecue with Warney and um, I think um, one point there was a representative from the United Nations talking and Sam Newman made the point just you know we knew he was big but the bloody the bloody UN's here it's um, uh, he seemed that way that larger than life that um, even the fact that. Uh, was it Kelly Slater, the surfer, was giving, um, it, you know, was 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 on there, and it was and Greg Norman. It was like some, somewhere, no matter around the um, sort of around the Western world, Warney was always um, um, rubbing shoulders with the rich and famous, um, which was was pretty cool. I thought that Anthony Collier at the end as well sang really well. That um, that was a really kind of stirring moment um, right at the end before they then had the unveiling of the Shane Warne stand. It was a it was a fitting kind of conclusion to the show as well. Yeah, um, I thought. You would have liked the Don Bradman clip that they pulled out of the archives. Yeah, I love that clip. I, I mean, I watched that interview live with Don Bradman. Um, I think it was in 1996, maybe. Um, it was called 87 Not did. Out. When it, of course, of course well, you did. Well, obviously, you watched it live as well, I would imagine. Yeah, Didn't probably. you watch it live? Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not that I, I remember it was, it was pretty major. the big... Uh, yeah, it was. It was a pretty major event. Um and they chose a perfect clip of him saying, you know, uh, that he's the best young leg spinner I've ever seen and he is the best thing to happen to the game of cricket for a very, very long time. Oh, that was an awesome clip. Um, and they had his uh, granddaughter, Greta, Greta Bradman, singing the national anthem at the start. Um, I think it was quite nice. The sort of the, the uh, reverent references um, throughout to, to Bradman was pretty cool. So, yes, I, yeah, I really enjoyed that part of it. Yeah, and I agree with you. I found the kids speaking really heart-wrenching, especially when uh, when – you know, Summer spoke about how Warney saved her when she was going through a tough time. And, and um, you know, Brooke Warne said, and I can just hear Warney saying it, try harder, Brookster, try harder, Brookster. And you can just hear Warney saying that to his kids. He was that sort of bloke. And, um, yeah, it was really emotional. I have to say I found the, the unveiling of the stand at the end quite uplifting after a really um, sad celebration then to end like that i did feel that kind of i don't know it it was a powerful moment yeah 
And and it's great that they've done that. I think that uh, the, the stand looks great. I'm pleased it's not SK worn. as a minor bugbear of mine. I just think that Shane worn is so much more appropriate. And I suppose you, you reflect on these sorts of things that it is a pity that um, things like that don't get done in people's lives. If they'd announced, the crazy thing is if they'd announced that they're going to name the Great Southern Stand the Shane Warne Stand, there probably would have been a lot of people disagreeing with it and saying, blah, 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 blah. But now that he's dead, everyone realises that it actually is appropriate. It is sad that he couldn't have um, actually seen it happen because it would have been an amazing thing for him to see. So um, I also thought that it was really nice seeing Steve War there. Um, you know, he didn't obviously play a a part in it because it would have been inappropriate given that they weren't friends. But um, he was sitting there next to Gilchrist. He was laughing whenever they showed him, at the, you know, laughing at the, at the right times and everything else. So I thought that was a nice um, nice gesture by Steve War to, to go as well. And I thought that Nasser Hussain, I think, as always, spoke really well. And just his um, heartfelt tribute from, um, you know, on behalf of sort of the people of England um, got a, a rousing round of applause and, and it deservedly and, and, it is, and it deserves to do so. Yeah, t- tremendous input from all the guests. I thought the two panels, one hosted by Andy Lee and one by Mark Howard, were excellent. I, I loved the stories, and it, w- it was just such a moving occasion hearing all the memories come back of Warren. And, um, yeah, I was sitting there like, blubbering and emotional, and I forgot I told SEN Radio that I would go on straight after and talk about it. So with a few minutes to go, I get this, I'm sitting on my, you know, crying into my cup of tea and then I get this message, we will be good to go in 10 minutes. So I'm like <laughs> slapping myself around. Um, didn't want to be a, a mess on the, the radio, but our friend Chris Warren, who used to be at SCN, um, was about the same, so it was okay. Yeah, I found myself getting emotional at various stages too, and it's not something I typically do. I, um, but I was watching it, especially during the uh, during the Anthony Clear bit, and I was, I was showing a bit of it to my wife, and it was just, you know, it was quite, um, it was hard not to 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 be emotional, and with the, with the children speaking and his dad speaking um, uh, as well, um, and also it was funny. Um, I can't remember who it was. It was, might have been Jeff Lemon. I might have that wrong, but someone was saying that every time, or maybe maybe it was um, Gideon Haig actually that every time you watch the ball of the century, you see something new and you kind of um, want to watch it again. And that's exactly what I found myself doing. I've watched the ball of the century probably 500 times, maybe a thousand times, but usually these days it's on a phone and a dodgy YouTube clip to see it in all its glory on an actual proper screen. And um, um, without any sort of age to the, to the tape, I found myself going back and watching it again and again. And if anything, I think it's even, even a better ball than I'd always, I'd always thought it's the best ball I've ever seen, but um you know, I remember I think it was Fred Truman saying if Gatting had played forward a bit more, he would have been able to um, survive. And I think that's ridiculous. No one's going to survive that ball. No. Yeah, I found the highlights package very um, heart-wrenching. And, again, it was just another time when I cried. And um, I sort of felt when it was over that, you know, the, just the the sadness of, like, the reality of him being gone. And, you know, there is there once the services like that are over there's a real flat feeling i find in the grieving process yeah i mean it's probably different for me because i watched it just now um but i see what you mean if i'd watched it at the time i probably would have felt that way as well um one thing i think that's worth touching on is that um while they did touch on a couple of warnie's kind of lovable um traits of uh you know his dad talked about his um sorry less lovable traits but sort of um rascally traits where he gave that big send off to Andrew Hudson in South Africa they didn't touch on some of the you know if you're going to do a, an unbiased review of Shane Warne's life you would have to say there are some things you would have to be more critical about I think anyone who watched it and was sort of angry that they didn't mention those I think it was right that they didn't you know his life was 99% triumph and wonderful and 
that wasn't the time to talk about um you know the mark war thing or um the the drugs thing in 2003 or anything like that i think uh, i don't think what i'm trying to say is that anyone who thinks it was just um looking at it in rose-colored glasses i don't think it was i think it was an appropriate tribute to his life yeah spot on they got they got the balance perfectly Correct, and uh, I did hear Adam Gilchrist saying that after that service, there was a bit of a shindig with all the the cricketers that were together. You can imagine, um, you know, I mean, you saw Steve Waugh and Gilchrist, but they were, you know, hundreds of um, cricket personalities from around the world all in that one spot, and mm. I think they, um, you know, celebrated Warren's life appropriately. That's what Adam Gilchrist said. So I think <laughs> it was a big night. Uh, a late night as they remembered their great uh, teammate. What they should have done is had every person there of significance mic'd up Big Brother style and then recorded the whole thing and they could have put that on over the next five weeks as the reality TV show instead of all the other rubbish they have. I'd, that'd get me in there. If it was like, um, you know, next up, Adam Gilchrist was chatting to Steve Waugh about the um, the 99 World Cup. And I'd be like, sure, I'll listen to that for hours. <laughs> Except they're like, you know, six beers deep by that point. That's what would have made it interesting. Well, maybe the, the audience would be encouraged to drink as well to kind of keep yourself at the same level as them. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's move on from Shane Warne's memorial service, but congratulations to everybody that organised that. A, a triumph, a success from beginning to end, and I'm the first to criticise those things because they usually have a, a couple of stinkers, or but there was none of that. So well done. Um, to the people who put that on and all the contributors. Um, yeah, and now I think moving that, um, on. What, what I, think is, I think Eddie Maguire did a good job as host as well. Um, I know mm. Eddie often gets a lot of criticism and a lot of it's probably well-deserved, but I think that on an occasion like that, um, he, he did a, a very fine job. Yeah, I agree. All right, let's move on to the Australian Women's World Cup win. We have not recorded since Australia lifted the trophy in New Zealand. They went through the World Cup undefeated. And, Paul, this really, to me, had shades of the 2003 or 2007 World Cup where Australia, in the men's format, where Australia just dominated and they had everyone in form. And that's what I felt about this women's team, that they were just performers right down the squad. Yeah, and it's a fitting, um, I, I wouldn't say climax, because they'll they'll keep on going onwards and upwards. But uh, given that in this cycle, um, they have had that immense unbeaten streak that was the world record, and to then go into the World Cup as strong favourites, but, you know, they didn't win it last time. There's always this feeling of, anything can happen in a knockout game to, to go through undefeated in the pool phase. And then you get to the semis and think, Oh, wouldn't it be a tragedy if they, um, you know, have what put their one bad performance in, in one of these two knockout games. And instead uh, to win it so emphatically, it just underlines the, the fact that Australia is the best side in the world. Um, and the gap between them and second best is probably equivalent to the gap between second best and seventh best. Yeah, I think Mel Jones said after the final that you feel at the moment that Australia's second team would be the second best team in the world. Yes, I think that's very true. And and their third best team would be up there as well. Before we get into the Australian performances, I, I do think, though, it was a wonderful World Cup. And despite Australia's dominance, there was many, many games that went down to the last over. I think um, the fact that um, who made the semi-final, South Africa and West Indies too, Relatively unfancied sides made the semi-finals. 
it's uh, shame India missed out, but I, I just think it shows that actually women's cricket is quite healthy. Like there was a lot of really exciting games. Yeah, it's good that South Africa and West Indies made because everyone before the tournament was sort of saying, well, it's going to be Australia, New Zealand, England, and India in the semis, and um, and that's going to be that. So the fact that two of those sides didn't make it and two different ones did is um, is very heartening. Um, and I, I don't want to be um, you know putting a downer on things, but it just was disappointing. It underlined again how. Disappointing the decision was by Channel 9 not to show it. They could easily have shown it on Gem. They could have shown it on Go. They've got you know plenty of networks to show it on. And as I always, when I make these points, I'm not saying they should have shown it out of altruistic reasons. I'm saying they should have shown it out of commercial reasons. It would have rated really well, and I'm sure it would have rated better than whatever, whatever else they had on Gem or Go on those um, days and nights. Plus the momentum that would have um, picked up with it being on the news and being you know in the vibe all the time. I think that uh, a lot of people who otherwise would have taken an interest in this tournament, it probably passed them by. And I think that's a, a disappointment. And the fact that Channel 9 could have then gone and actually shown the final and chose not to was also, um, I think, a poor decision. And uh, it must reflect a little bit on Cricket Australia, that they um, ultimately, uh, it's up to them to try to make these things get on um, major television uh, networks. The fact that they didn't, um, they deserve a little bit of um, criticism for that. Yeah, really poor decision by Channel 9. And uh, I just don't understand the thinking behind it. And they they really lost out because there were so many good games. As you say, the, the semifinal and the final with Australia would have raided through the roof. And uh, they just missed out on that opportunity. Um, some amazing performances by the Australian uh, team. The batters were led by Elisa Healy. 509 runs at an average of 57 with two fifties and two centuries, those two centuries, one coming in the semi-final against the West Indies, then Healy made an astonishing 170 in the final, the highest ever score by any player in a World Cup final. Um, so she Healy becomes the first player, male or female, to make over 500 runs in a World Cup. Rachel Haynes was on 497 runs just behind her with one century and three fifties, and Meg Lanning. Also a big contributor, 394 runs. Um, just performances right down that batting order. Yes, and as you said, the performance right down it, but um, uh, it's hard to go past Healy's performances in the in the really big games. And then you add to that the uh, the match-winning performance she, she played in front of 87,000 at the MCG in the T20 World Cup. Um, wow, what a... Um, you know, they talk about the big name players doing it when it really matters. Uh, Gilchrist kind of did it a bit with the, with the Australian men and Ponting. Um, Healy's um, right up there at that level and possibly above them. Yeah, it was a crazy final. And for the Australian women bowlers, it was really shared around of the bowlers. Only two bowlers went for over five runs per over. Jess Jonathan was the leading wicket taker with 13 wickets. Alana King, 12 wickets. The leg spinner bowled excellently. Ash Gardner took 10 wickets. So wicket shared right around. Megan shoot nine. Yeah, lots of... Um, no real standout performers with the ball in terms of, you know, streaking away with the most wickets. Just a great team effort with the ball. Yeah, as you say, no standouts necessarily on the good side, but also key, no standouts on the bad side. Normally you look at any set of um, bowling averages in any tournament anywhere and there's three or four that have got plastered everywhere. And here um, for, you know, I mean, Talia McGrath's more than just a part-timer, but to for her to have the, the worst economy rate in you know uh, 5.43 is, is is not too bad at all taking five wickets as well uh shows what a dominant performance the Australians um, put in yeah my uh, world cup final 
viewing was severely curtailed because I was actually commentating on the Sydney women's grade cricket final. And uh, it was supposed to be the week before and then it was rained out, so it was delayed. So I turned up and and said to the commentators, look, we're only competing against the World Cup final today, so don't worry. (laughs) Um, But, um, you know, I, I didn't. I didn't think about it, but actually Elisa Healy's dad is the president of Sydney Cricket Club. So while I was commentating, about five metres to my right was Elisa Healy's dad, and he was watching the Sydney Cricket Club final and not watching the World Cup final. I had my phone next to me, and I could see Elisa Healy, you know, 120, 130, and Greg Healy not watching a ball of it. And, And I was sort of thinking... That's great commitment to Sydney Cricket Club, but also, you know, Paul, you're a parent as well. Maybe as a parent, that's actually easier to watch it later on on replay when you can relax. That could be the thing, that um, there's nothing like watching something live except when it doesn't go the way you want it to. And sometimes uh, I I have watched um, sporting events where the team that I've supported has triumphed 27 times in a row and have the ability to kind of, um, pretend not to know the result and, and almost enjoy it as much. So I'm sure at some stage he sat down and watched the entire innings knowing that there was nothing but joy ahead of him. So, yeah, good on him. Yeah, didn't even have his phone out. So, uh, yeah, that was I, I found that really interesting. Um, but it shows how committed he is to his job. Uh, one thing I just want to touch on with the World Cup is that, you know, Australia seemed to be putting a big gap between them and the rest of the teams. But one thing my experience with men's cricket taught me, Paul, is that other nations can catch up and it doesn't take as long as we think it does. So maybe right now there's a bit of a gap, but if India or England or any of these nations just throw a little bit more resources at women's cricket, they will be nipping at our heels pretty quickly. Yeah, it's it's possible, but it's also possible that it might take longer. I mean, you look at the... um the men's game and Australia in the mid eighties, when they kind of reached their low point and started to, you know, they created the cricket Academy and really threw resourcing into it and then led the world in professionalism thereafter. Once they hit sort of number one in 1995, they, they really didn't get conquered as number one really for, you know, 12, 15 years. So um, it's, it's a, it's a hard target that the other, the, the other nations have sure. And I always say this when India really take it seriously and throw the right amount of money at it and, get a, um, a women's IPL up and running, a, a proper one, um, they will, with their enormous population, they will come on in leaps and bounds. So at some stage, Australia is going to be challenged again, but it might not be um, as soon as you think. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm not saying tomorrow, but like for, with the men's game, you know, Australia led the pack. We we started the academy led by Rod Marsh and we, we started to do things that other nations weren't doing and then eventually they copied us. And we're starting to see that now. There's the women's hundred that will be improving uh, English women's cricket. There's talk about a, a PSL uh, women's league to go, go ahead next year. Of course, there's the women's IPL um, that looms whenever they decide to do it. So I just think when those things, you know, kick off, before we know it, uh, we'll, we'll find we've got some good competition, which the, the game needs. Yeah, absolutely. All righty, moving on from the Women's World Cup, congratulations to that fine team. I was actually looking at the, the team that won the World Cup and 80% of them have been on this podcast. So that's pretty good. That's pretty fun. Um, it's good. All right, a massive IPL has begun. So it's a 10-team competition. And I know you haven't been watching much, Paul, but 
the real story for me is not the winners, it's the losers so far. The Mumbai Indians, who are the powerhouse, have not won a game. They've played six and lost six. The Chennai Super Kings played six and lost five. Then it's a bit closer um, as you go up the ladder. But two big names already um, sort of flailing at the bottom of the league. And this is my concern about a 10-team league, Paul, that if you have a couple of teams drop out early, hard to get back. Yeah, I suppose um, they could do the the cynical thing and say, and they may well do this and say, wait a minute, um, we need to, we've got, there's a potential for a few dead rubbers a bit too early. So maybe they need to go from a final four to a final five. Um, to, mm. um, you know, which uh, the purist in me would say, no, they shouldn't have any finals at all. It should just be first past the post like it is in the, uh, in the English Premier League. But in reality, to try to make things um, more interesting or um, find a way to have some relegation. That'd be pretty interesting if Mumbai got relegated. <laughs> <laughs> to what the, I don't know, is there a, what is it, the Karnaka T20 League or something? There's a few in India. The Karnataka, Karnataka T20, yeah. yeah. Um, that's, yeah, but that's a state. Um, so that um, that's just one state's league. But I used to say um, to my Indian friends back when it wasn't a completely idiotic thing to say, I'd say that the team that came last in the Big Bash would get relegated into the IPL just to stir them up. Um, back when the <laughs> when the Big Bash was almost challenging the IPL for supremacy, but now you say that they think, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> I actually like your idea of having five finalists in the IPL. They do it in the Big Bash, and there's only eight teams. I think if you're going to have a ten-team league, it's it's not a bad idea. Just because, for example, now, so the uh, well. Yeah, Mumbai are eight points now off fifth spot. Yeah, with eight games to go. Um, so it's still hard, whichever way you look at it. Actually, <laughs> yeah, that's true. But you know, you never know how the maths is going to work out. But a, a five-team comp. Uh, I mean, if you're being cynical, you got six-team um, semi-finals as well. If you want to go crazy, um, that's going to keep the interest in it for longer, but lose a bit of the authenticity, I suppose. Right, some Australian news. Mitchell Marsh has contracted COVID. The poor guy's got an IPL curse. Wasn't it last summer or the year before? No, two IPLs when he was last there. In the first or second game, he went to stop a ball with his foot and fractured it. Now he's got COVID. Um, hope he's doing okay. Apparently he was taken to hospital, um, but fingers crossed. It's always a concern when someone goes to hospital with, with COVID. And it's always a reminder, I think, that um, there's this notion that sometimes you go, oh, it's, you know, it's a minor sort of thing. It's, it's, it's anything but, like, you know, um, plenty of people get very, very sick from it. So, uh, yeah, I wish him uh, all the very best and hope to hear he is out of hospital very soon. Have you had COVID yet, Paul? No. Um, I mean, I'm, it sort of feels like it's inevitable, but at the moment I've, I've been very, very fastidious about wearing masks everywhere and, and you know, obviously I'm triple vaxxed and can't wait for my fourth vaccine and doing all of the right things, but... I just think eventually um, one of the viruses is going to have my number on it, I fear. Mm, yeah, I think so. In other news, Matthew Wade was dropped from the Gujarat Titans. He was opening the batting in the first five or six games, I think first five games, but then then was it left out. So that's a shame. My man, Matty Wade, he was a bit unlucky. He got a bad run out and, um, yeah, hopefully he gets another crack. And then Shows Josh the, Butler's... Um... I was just going to say, it shows how cutthroat the IPL is, that um, Wade at the moment is an absolute fixture in the Aussie side and um, performed brilliantly in the World Cup. But, yeah, there's no... Um, uh, if you don't cut it quickly in the IPL, you, you're soon on the sidelines. 
Yeah, those four overseas spots are so mm. coveted that if you've got one of them and you're not performing, you know, you've got superstars waiting on the bench to take your spot. So you're not going to get much rope. Um, Josh, Josh Butler has been in some superb form. In six innings, he scored 250s, two centuries, averaging 75 with a strike rate of 157. I mean, where was that during the Ashes? I just think that... Um... Partially, it is that they say to them in Test cricket, you know, you've got to value your wicket, go out there and, um, you know, put your life on it. I know that he was given the the freedom to uh, play with a little bit of more of expansiveness in the in the Ashes, but I, I, I'm sure if he could walk out for this summer um, thinking that he was playing in the IPL and that he just had a license to swing, he'd do more, he'd do a lot better than he would if he went out in the and not that he's going to make their Test side, but if he was in their Test side and was playing in proper test match fashion. Of course, go out and slog, you're going to nick a few. But I think that the Gilchrist manner is what would suit him. And, I, you know, if I was England's test side, I'd say, yep, you're in the side, but you've got to make sure you score a strike rate of over 100. I'm not sure he's going to get too many more chances, Butler, in the Probably test not. side. I think for- yeah. Um, uh, with the Aussies, David Warner started well. He scored 250s in three innings. Josh Hazelwood, three matches, eight wickets. He took four wickets in the latest match, averaging 10.75 runs per over of 7.16. This is, to me, one of the the greatest stories in cricket going around at the moment. Hazelwood, three years ago, really was written off as a T20 bowler. And then he's gone away and worked at his craft, and he's now probably arguably in the top five T20 fast bowlers in the world. Yeah, and it just shows that um, no matter the format, and he doesn't have necessarily the sort of the the myriad change ups and funky slower balls of everyone else. But when you're six foot six and you're accurate and you're pretty quick and you can do a bit with it, really, um, no matter what the format is, you should be a very very awkward customer. And yeah, I've, I agree. It's it's wonderful seeing how well he's doing. And he's just worked on his variations. He's talked about adding a few slower balls and having the ability not to ball the same ball ball twice. That was always his problem, that he was a bit predictable, but now every ball is different. Yeah, he's probably just put that 10% of um, T20-ness into his bowling. That rather, There was a little bit with that with McGrath as well. You sometimes think towards the end of his career in a 50-over game, he maybe could be taken down because he was just so um, metronomic with his um, uh, line and length. And I remember when he went to the 2007 World Cup thinking, oh, I hope he hasn't taken it one tournament too far because he's just about the best Australian fast bowler of all time. Um, it would be a pity if he got smashed. And then he had an absolutely dominant tournament as Australia won it undefeated. Yeah, incredible stuff from McGrath at the end there. I started to think that as well, and you're right. It didn't play out like that at all. He was what mm. player of that World Cup, wasn't he? <laughs> you um, think so, Yeah. <laughs> Um, all right, now some news that will give all the Australian listeners some joy moving off the IPL and, and keep an eye on that tournament. We'll be um, back talking about it. Um, England are in disarray. Joe Root's quit. They've just got a new chairman, Rob Key. I mean, who'll be the coach? Who'll be the captain? What do you think, Paul? Yeah, it's a remarkable set of circumstances that for a few days there, they didn't have a captain, they didn't have a coach, they didn't have a selector, they didn't have a director of cricket and their chairman is um, on sort of like a temporary contract. So it was quite um, <laughs> quite amazing. Um, I think it's the right thing for Joe Root to, to resign as captain. Um, I, I just think that uh, lovely guy and 
their best batter for sure, but just never struck me as being a, a natural captain. And so um, why why keep on persisting with what's not working? Um, I think that, as I always say, the significance of the captaincy is a little bit overstated, but in this instance here, I think if they'd had a more imaginative captain, the Ashes would have been closer. They still would have got beaten. It might have been 3-1 instead of 4-0, and it might have been a much closer, a much more competitive series. So um, I presume that Ben Stokes will will, will get the job. Um, and I think that, you know, he's just, he probably will be an improvement. And I think it's interesting around Rob Key being made the director of cricket that uh, I, I like Key as a commentator. I think he's intelligent and, and well worth listening to. So I certainly don't think he'll do a bad job, but I just do find it strange that the, the Venn diagram of, having faster hand-eye coordination and sighting a ball faster than the average person with um, so many things seems to overlap that, you, that those skill sets that um, that along with commentary seem to be the same skill set. Now that along with being um, uh, a managing director of a major, major sort of commercial enterprise seem to be um, uh, overlapping as well. I, I think it would have been better to get someone who has a proven track record in sports management in a major league somewhere um, rather than someone who's got plenty of good ideas about the game. But you'd sort of think that after five years in it, he might think, oh, if I could go back now with all that experience and do it again, maybe I'd do a much better job. But yeah, I wish him well and certainly not the worst choice. Yeah, Jamie Cox, who the form, the former Australian selector and he's now the director of the MCC over at Lords, he he said similar to your uh, sentiments, Paul. He he was curious that they'd appointed someone with no administration experience. So forget the fact that he was a cricketer or not. He just hasn't worked in sports administration. And Cox made the point that he, he felt that does Key know how hard you have to work in these jobs? Because mm. commentary, it's not that it's an easy gig, but Cox knows from working in sports administration that heading up English cricket is a it's probably an 18-hour-a-day job. And and you talk to um, other CEOs around the world, Nick Hockley and all those, one of the reasons it's so demanding is just the time difference because you're always dealing with boards around the world uh, that are all hours of the night. And I just wonder if Key can hack the tough environment. There's a sort of a parallel with, um, you remember in 2006, I think it was, when Eddie Maguire was made CEO of Channel 9. and the, So he's a television personality in Australia who was at the time rating the house down and everything that he did. And he's obviously a smart guy who works hard. Now, he has a lot of detractors, as I said before, often with good reason. But they made him a CEO. And you thought, oh, well, he knows TV. That's maybe not a a bad choice, but others were saying he's got no experience at this. And it turned out that he didn't do a particularly good job. And I think some of the things that he fell down in was in terms of people management and, and dealing with um, having to sort of sack staff. And that. I don't know what is entailing, what, what the actual role that Rob Key is going to be involved in entails, but he might fall down if he does fall down on, um, you know, not having the, the wherewithal to handle a difficult um, performance discussion with someone and all these things that he potentially hasn't got any experience on that you get someone like, I don't know, John O'Neill, the former Australian Rugby Union and soccer um, aficionado who did a, a wonderful job. Someone like that has all that corporate backing and all that sort of experience. So, yeah, that's kind of where I'm coming from. The other thing specifically with Key is that I found it interesting that he's been saying that Anderson and Broad are kind of, he doesn't want them to get in the way of the next generation. And I also find that strange that, um, you know, if you've got um, a, a budding fast bowler on the wings who's absolutely brilliant and you're only picking Anderson out of loyalty and you, you're holding someone back who's ready to go now. Yeah, for sure. But if the next generation is not as good, then you should cling on to the ones you've got for as long as possible. England have got a summer of um, seven test matches at home 
they'd hate to finish that summer and think, oh, um, we didn't do that well. It would have been handy to have Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad bowling a fair bit more. Um, well, on that topic, um, Jeff Boycott wrote a column in the Telegraph in London that was published in the Sydney Morning Herald here, and he suggested that Stuart Broad might actually be a good option as a sort of skipper for the next year or two while they're sort of maybe finding a new one because he's worried about the effect of the captaincy on Ben Stokes because he's an all-rounder and he uh, boycott saw what happened to Botham's game when he was given the captaincy and he, he's just a bit concerned, uh, boycott, that maybe uh, giving Stokes the captaincy will stifle him. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, and I don't think that Stuart Broad would be a bad choice at all. I, I think he actually would be quite a good choice. Um, and Vic Marks was making the point that you don't have to appoint someone with the intention of it being for five years. It's perfectly acceptable to appoint him just with the intention of this summer. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's interesting because both of them failed as a captain and Flintoff failed as a captain. And so people say Stokes is the sort of the third in a row of their wonderful all-rounders. Maybe he'll fail as a captain as well. But I do think he's different to those guys that I think he's a little bit less instinctive and a more um, earnest sort of cricketer. The, uh, I've said it before that he gets out and goes and views his whole innings on, a, on his laptop. You know, if you said, if you'd handed Ian Botham a laptop, he probably would have thrown it through a window. Um, Stokes, by all accounts, mm works harder in training than any other cricketer ever. Um, both of them said, I'm not going to go to the nets because I'm claustrophobic. I'm going to have a glass of wine instead. Um, so I, I just think that whomever is made captain, um, they should be given a session with Uncle Ciappelli. Um, and I mean that sincerely. I really do think Ian Chappell was the best captain um, going around. And I think that the, the, the clear message he'd be giving would be, you know, be aggressive and your number one job when you're in the field, take wickets, number two job, stop singles, Number three priority a long way down is stop boundaries. And um, don't let the game meander. Put in aggressive fields, um, declare aggressive, play aggressively. And if if Stokes did that, um, then I think he'd actually be a good captain because it's the exact opposite of what poor old Root did. (laughs) Ciappelli, fucking enemy on uh, TikTok. I can tell you that much. Not popular there. All right, just one thing on Jeff Boycott. So in his column, uh, there was some classic boycott stuff. So he was writing about... The skip the the skippers he played under, and he was writing about uh, Illingworth, and he he wrote, it helped that he had some great players like John Snow, Alan Knott, Derek Underwood, John Edrich, and myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fact is, I was a great player. There's no denying it. It's true. <laughs> it is it. true. All I right. don't think it was true. I think he was um, a very, very good player, but averaged 47. Oh, he's just below the threshold of greatness. Um, and Boyks, if you're listening, sorry, mate. Ooh, you won't be on his Christmas card list. All right, let's get to some of these questions from the viewers. I've only got a couple of viewers, but Martin Lawrence is watching. And um, he and he writes, can you see anyone other than Stokes being England captain? And I would say yes. But Stokes is the favourite, but I wouldn't mind Stuart Broad. Uh, there's not many options, though, because uh, there's not many certainties in the 11. Another one might be Johnny Bairstow, but he's a bit of a loose cannon. You never know what England are going to do. Um, James Vince has been talked about seriously in some quarters as being a possible captain. I don't know who the Australian equivalent of James Vince is, but um, whomever that is would never be talked about as being the next Australian test captain. I mean, Vince is a good player, but he's hasn't succeeded at test level wouldn't currently be in England's probably second 11. The notion of parachuting him in um, as captain, it's, it's something that, you know, England do some bizarre things. The other one that 
he's lost a bit of form in the last couple of years. But Owen Morgan, if this had happened a couple of years ago, they might have been tempted to bring him in um, as well. But no, I, I think that it'll go to Stokes. I, I can't see it going to anyone else unless Stokes doesn't want it. All right, let's move on to Can't Let It Go. The line's getting a bit choppy. We did get 90% of that, Paul, but um, let's just get on to Can't Let It Go. Uh, my Can't Let It Go is um, that, unfortunately, uh, former Australian wicketkeeper and Western Australian player and current coach of the Netherlands, Ryan Campbell, has suffered a heart attack in London and is in a coma in London. And I'm just uh, sending my best wishes to his family, him, and hope he has a speedy recovery. Yeah, absolutely. Um Mine is a couple. One, uh, I wish that a billion people watched the Warney um, uh, Memorial. That's what some of them were claiming. Of course, a billion people didn't watch it. It would have been nowhere near a billion people. I don't know why people make these outlandish claims. It's just um, nonsensical. But um, however many people did watch it, um, I'm sure they enjoyed it. And um, as the weather here in Sydney is slowly starting to get a bit cooler, um, uh, the pleasure that I often feel at the upcoming England summer. I really am looking forward. I know it's a little bit away, but they've got three tests against New Zealand with one makeup test against India, three against South Africa. Um, can't wait to start once again watching uh, seven test matches all through the night of watching the English summer. And also matches that I really don't have a massive strong interest on who's going to win. So there's no sort of um, you know, bias or anything like that. It's just pure pleasure of watching the uh, bat against ball. Can't wait. Yeah, I found myself watching county cricket the other night. There was a thrilling match with Essex chasing 84, I think, for a win. And um, Peter Siddle was playing for Somerset. And Somerset, so Somerset v Essex, and Essex were like, you know, six for 40 chasing 84, and it turned out to be a thrilling finish. Um, Australian Mark Steckity was uh, the at the crease when, Somerset, uh, when Essex hit the winning runs, um, nine down, um, a thrilling game. So I know what you're saying, Paul. Love a bit of English cricket. Um, all righty. Well, um, who has Australia got next summer? I know we've got South Africa and I think the West Indies. Yeah, and I think that England um, might be coming out for some one-dayers maybe. Um, I think that might be the case. Because uh, they never, they didn't play yeah. any one-dayers after the Ashes. I think they'd lopped them on at the end of this season. But, um, yeah, but prior to that, we've got the Tour of Sri Lanka coming up in the not-too-distant future, which I'm... Um, you know, massively looking forward to as well. That could clash with the uh, England summer as well, and um, that might be hard for me to watch. Three three p.m. start in Sri Lanka through to a three a.m. finish in England. That'll be great. <laughs> with a full time job. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to Cricket Unfiltered. Uh, hope Jaleesa gets well soon, uh, Paul. Great to see you, and uh, we'll be back with another show in the next medium term. I would say medium to long term. Not not long-term. What do you define as long-term? On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving. At your desk. Maybe at the gym. But you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach. And see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Sports Social Podcast Network.